Welcome to the Forecast Fest. I'm Kate Baldwin, here with my dear friends, together once again, uh, John Avlon. Hola. <laughs> and Harry Enton. Shalom. I thought he was going to sing it. You should have heard his levels today, everyone. It was all in song. Mm-hmm. You're lucky you didn't. <laughs> this week, we're going to take a break, a bit of a break, from the 2020 presidential horse race and look at some of the news percolating up from further down the ballot. Next week, North Carolina is set to hold a special election in the 9th Congressional District. We're going to take a look at that seat, which has been embroiled in controversy and scandal. And then we're going to turn our focus to the Senate and the battle from both sides of the aisle to maintain or win control of that chamber. How real is the fight? What seats should be getting the most focus right now? We will let you know. And finally, we're going to be jumping across the pond, because why not, to talk Brexit and Boris Johnson. But before all that fun, let's get to the real fun, which is Mm. the latest forecast. Harry? Well, oh my God, I have it right here. Um, (laughs) We're going to look at the power rankings that Chris, Eliza, and I put together every two weeks of the top 10 candidates. And we have some movement this time around. So coming in at number 10, down from his previous spot at number 9, is Julian Castro. Up two, because he wasn't right last time, is Andrew Yang. Number eight, Amy Klobuchar, the senior senator from the great state of Minnesota. She's down a spot. Beto O'Rourke is up a spot. He's up to number seven. Number six, holding steady, Senator Cory Booker from the great state of New Jersey. Number five, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Number four, down one spot, is the senator from the great state of California, Kamala Harris, And up, breaking a tie from the last time we did this to number three, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, holding steady at number two, the senior senator from the great state of Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren, and number one, retaining his spot at the top of the Democratic field, former Vice President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. Robinette. Rarely do you hear the middle name. I like that. Except Harry uses it every time. I feel like after every forecast, we have to go, let's get ready to rumble. (laughs) That's how we do it. It's like like a very old Rocky movie. Mm, I like it. Um, I have one question about this ranking. Oh, please. I'm here with you. Andrew Yang. Andrew, I don't understand how he's rising. The guy that just can't quit. Because everybody wants $1,000 a month. And very much on message. But still, probably not going to be president. So how is he beating, oh, I don't know, I got, Julian Castro? I got new- Not a believer you are, John Avalon. <laughs> I've got news for you. My guess is probably none of those people in the bottom five, six through ten, are going to be present, all of whom are polling below 5%. The, the track record of those polling below 5% at this point nationally and in the early states is simply put not very no good. Bueno. But what no does bueno. it say that they're, like, obviously the top, the top, the top tier is static at the moment, and all the movements down down in the bottom bottom half, if you will. Does that tell us anything? I think it tells you that we've had a pretty steady race all along, and that is that Joe Biden's been polling at about 30 percent, with a few exceptions when he entered the race. And then after that first debate with Harris, he's been holding pretty steady. Bernie Sanders has got his 15 percent holding on to it. And in a 20-candidate field, that's good enough yeah. to be near the top. Elizabeth Warren obviously has risen over the last few months, but has pretty much been steady. I will note the one thing that has changed is we've dropped Harris down from three to four, and that when she was all the way up at two after the first debate. And look, the fact is... She has a lot of potential, folks. She does. You know, she has a lot of endorsements. She's someone who might be able to link together the more moderate with the more liberal part of the mm-hmm. party. But you've got to be honest with yourselves at some point and realize that she is polling at about half the level of what Sanders and Warren are polling at. But you know what she isn't doing? She's not conflating a bunch of war stories into one story like we're seeing Joe Biden too soon. That was, oh, that was a good segue. Thank I was you. just admiring the segue. Oh, That's I all. I appreciate that, John. Um, does this mean that that strange, however you want to describe it, gaffe, that folks don't care about this and that 
maybe Harry doesn't care about it, and that what I Joe only Biden care what told care about what Joe Biden <laughs> said to NPR, which is what did he say? The details are that. irrelevant when he, but when it comes to his decision making, <clears throat> that that is what it is. You know, I think Biden, uh, first of all, a little bit of Biden being a gaffe uh, machine is baked into the cake. More importantly, uh, he's potentially campaigning against Donald Trump, who's like much deeper than gaffes. It's like a steady stream of outright lies. And in the case of The Washington Post story, good reporting. They caught a lot of fundamental inconsistencies. But basically, Biden conflated two stories and um, and and didn't do it in a way that made himself look good. Uh, and I think that lack of sort of a self-aggrandizement matters um, on this sort of stuff. More importantly, I think it's just very difficult to judge candidates by uh, the normal standards we've had in gaffes when Donald Trump's president of the United States. Biden also said the Parkland kids came and spoke to him about gun control. Well, they, he was out of the, the White House for a year. But, that is that's but, the but serious they, stuff. But right. But they did come and talk to him. It just he wasn't. The VP Vice at president. the time, but but this is not something that you forget. Well, I think apparently I think, it is. But but I think actually that's where the serious stuff comes in because to the extent that Biden's mistakes start reinforcing the narrative that he's slipping, mm-hmm. that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a practical mm-hmm. political problem mm-hmm. for this candidate. That's um, I think correct. We're going. Can we just for a second? Now we know where they stack up against each other, the Democrats. But talk about the hypothetical head-to-heads of since there's some new new polling out about matchups with Donald Trump. Um, you, Harry, you were taking a look back, looking at this Q poll. You took a look back at how um, to get a sense of the head-to-heads and what they really tell us at this point in the race. What did you find? As I'm doing a little dancing in my Just time stop. machine. Ooh, <laughs> whoa! <laughs> we went back to disco. So. Uh, Look, there was a Quinnipiac University poll out uh, last week that had that matched up the top five candidates in our power rankings against Trump, and they were all beating him by at least nine points. Biden was, I believe, up by about 16 points in that particular poll. And you know what? That is very, very unusual in a historical context because check this out. No incumbent at this point since World War II had their worst poll against their eventual opponent at this point in the campaign, you know, the August or there and about the year before the election took place. The worst poll ever in history was that the incumbent was down four points. Nine of the 11 were ahead. This poll, the most likely candidate, Biden, was up 16 points over the incumbent. Way worse for Trump than the worst ever. And the worst, even in that group, for the Democrats was Buttigieg, who was up, I believe, nine in that poll. And that's still even worse for Trump than the worst of all time. Okay, yes. But correct me or disagree with me. I still think head-to-heads are duds. I will disagree with you, Kate Baldwin. Here is why. Um, First of all, head-to-heads are what ultimately people decide in a president. It's a compared to what proposition. It's not generic Dem versus specific president. Um, these historic trends do matter, but they're obviously not definitive. It's worth noting the two out of the, the, the two between the nine and the eleven were, I think, Jimmy Carter and George H. W. Right? Uh, it was actually Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama who barely won. You're the correct. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Um, okay. One by less than five. Okay. One by less than five. But here, here's the important point. Uh, Trump team is very confident right now. They're making a lot of show behind the scenes of seeming incredibly confident about the election. The data does not suggest they have any reason to be confident. And for Democrats who are taking, making sport out of dismissing the idea of electability, the fact that Joe Biden is so much further ahead of anybody when it comes to a head-to-head with Donald Trump speaks to just that, electability. Fine. But here is why I say that. It's, to me, the entire calculation changes when there aren't 10 to 20 people vying for the nomination because the 
psychology, the reality actually changes for the person answering the pollster's question. When there's really one nominee facing off with one president, I think the picture just by its nature really shifts. Uh, Final pushback. Wouldn't a head-to-head actually more accurately create that choice, that decision tree? Yes, but when you're being asked in a poll, and you tell me if the, how the pollsters ask it. I'm thinking, I am some generic, I'm going to vote for a Democrat. You're not generic. I'm definitely generic. Just look at me. <laughs> and they're asking me, it, you know, if, if, if Pete Buttigieg is head-to-head with Donald Trump, who would you support? Next question. Kamala Harris is up against Donald Trump. Who do you support? You know that they're not up against him right now. I think if the fact that there's variability within the numbers and that Biden consistently does better against Donald Trump and add to that state to state polls, um, I think it does mean something. Is it definitive? No. But at the end of the day, the fact that head to heads mirror the compared to what of a presidential, I think, is why that. I I just end on this note and simply. So there. So it's a dud. Got it. Thank you. (laughs) End on this note. I, I would just say, look, this is just the latest numbers that we have that the president of the United States is in trouble. That's what's going on. The president has a net approval rating that has consistently been negative. It's consistently been between negative 10 and negative 15 points among voters. And I think what I'm looking for in the polling is any sign that perhaps that approval rating somehow understates the president. But these horse race numbers suggest, especially right. against Biden, that is anything but the case. The a president's trou- in trouble. Let's all agree on this. A troubling trend. A troubling trend. Okay. Yes. I'm glad we're all. Oh, oh, oh. Let us move down ballot now, boys, to North Carolina's ninth congressional district. Thank you, John. A seat that is still left undecided, really, from the 2018 election. A brief and rocky history of what actually happened. The results of the race for that seat in 18, got thrown out and a new election was ordered over very real allegations and evidence of possible ballot fraud, different from voter fraud friends that benefited the Republican in the race. Can we just do a quick timeout for why that matters so much? Because Donald Trump's closing argument was fear-mongering about voter fraud and the only election fraud that was found was actually on behalf of Republicans in this district. Yes, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. So we were talking about someone in this circumstance, someone linked to the Republicans' campaign who was allegations of and evidence of picking up and potentially fraudulently filling out absentee ballots from folks um, as they were turned in. This has been a long, drawn-out saga. The Republican is no longer running, who was originally in the race. The big day, though, now for the special election is now upon us next week. The Democrat, who ran in 18, is still running Dan McCready. The Republican running now is Dan Bishop. This is a mess. What are you watching for, John? This is a major mess, which fascinating is that it's a very close race. This is a district that Donald Trump won. It was drawn to have a positive uh, edge for for Republicans. Uh, Dan McCready is a centrist Democrat, former Marine, small business owner. Dan Bishop running against him, who won the primary, is someone who'd actually co-authored the infamous bathroom bill that caused so much trouble in North Carolina. He is a guy on the far right. He is trying to paint McCready, as per the Trump playbook, as a radical socialist leftist in bed with the squad, et cetera, et cetera. Doesn't really fit McCready, doesn't really fit the district. Um, polls are showing it's competitive, it's a special, so the ultimate cliche of politics doubly applies. It all comes down to turnout, but that's going to be a measure of enthusiasm. And it all comes on the back of North Carolina state court declaring that the, the gerrymandered maps in the state uh, are actually unconstitutional, need to be redrawn. So this really does matter because the candidates are, the, the Republican candidate really is right wing, trying the Trump playbook against a centrist Democrat in a district that has been drawn to favor Republicans. That 
that Trump won handily. Harry, what do the numbers tell you? Uh, I mean, I mean, here are the numbers. Here, look, there have been five polls released publicly. Here are what they found. They found Bishop up one, McCready up four, a tie. McCready up two, Bishop up four. The average of that, ladies and gentlemen, is pretty much a dead heat. And we know, as John was hinting at, that polling for special house elections is such that this is a within the margin of our race. Shouldn't be surprising anyone who wins. But this is a district Donald Trump won by 12 points. 12 points. If the Democrats can win here or even come close, I think it's another sign that we've seen from these special elections that, if nothing else, enthusiasm is on the Democrat side. And recall, remember, Democrats outperformed their baseline in the 2017-2018 special elections by double digits. And what you see? You saw a big Democratic wave hit the United States House in November of 2018. If McCready wins this one, I think it's probably going to be taken as a sign by a lot of prognosticators that the wins, the electoral wins, are still at the Democrats. Back. Well, and and McCready, when in the in the original, he was right there. I mean, mm-hmm. he lost by less than a thousand votes. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, if that's what happened in the original, and he had potential ballot fraud up against him. And then you've got folks who've been waiting to kind of get this thing over with. I'd feel like if I was sitting in that district, I feel if if a Democrat has any chance in that district, it would be now. Except I think that special elections don't benefit from the overall wave mentality. You'd like to think that everyone in the district is just as focused, just as motivated. It may be that's the case. It may be that benefits Democrats more. Maybe they're exhausted by this But they may just be exhausted. Folks are busy. And this district does have a decided Republican edge. It was drawn that way. So the fact that the Democrat isn't a competitive position is what's significant. So the takeaway there, watch a special election next week because this would be really, really interesting. This matters more than most specials because of the corruption that was credibly alleged the first time around. Can we all watch it together? Yes. Um, I'm busy. Just kidding. Oh. I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. I'll Makes watch it here. Sad. Will you bring the emotional support chicken? Ooh. I'm hoping that... Popeye's chicken sandwiches back in the stores by that point. Oh, my God. Moving on. We're going to take a short break. Perfect timing. And when we come back, a Senate seat is opening up in Georgia sooner than expected. What that could mean for the battle for control of the Senate and our favorite game, Senate math. Coming up. That's coming up. And we're going to tackle a truly impossible question um, to answer. What is Boris Johnson doing? Honestly. Mm. That's up next. (laughs) Last week, Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson of Georgia announced that he's resigning at the end of the year for health reasons, which means that his seat will be up on the ballot in 2020, which is two years earlier than was expected, than he was actually up. And that adds yet another element of surprise to the big battle for control of the Senate in 2020. Um, First Georgia and then more broadly, has anyone declared in Georgia? No. No, no one's done anything. No, it, it, the only Stacey Abrams, who everyone's eyes turned to because she ran a very competitive race against Governor Kemp, uh, has been recruited heavily. And she again threw up a Heisman and said, even with two seats open, she's not interested. Uh, she really wants a, a rematch against Kemp. I just want to note that I did a perfect Heisman while we were sitting in these chairs, and that's not easy to do. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that was a Heisman. Like, you know, but, a Columbia um, Lions football fan, I know something a about, lot about your Heisman. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Harry, would you like to um, dive into explaining the jungle primary? Look, I think want? I think we all enjoy nonpartisan jungle primaries, right? That's the thing. I, I always do. hate the name. Can I just say that? It just needs to be rebranded. I agree. Um, but so, I love them. 
but he <laughs> loves him. I may not love your name, but I love you, son. Um, don't ever say that to your child, because you named him. Um, what? Unless, of course, you adopt him at, like, age five or something, in which case maybe you didn't. You still shouldn't say that. In any event, the point is that a nonpartisan jungle primary, all candidates, regardless of party affiliation, run in a first round that will be held in November of 2020, Election Day. They will not have their partisan affiliation attached to their names. Of course, if you're voting, you probably have a pretty good idea of who the Democrats are and who the Republicans are. If any candidate gets above 50% on election day, that candidate will be crowned the winner and will fill out the rest of Isaacson's term. However, if no candidate reaches at least 50% plus one, then the top two finishers will face off in a runoff. Get this, folks, in January of 2021. So we could, in fact, be dealing with an election that goes all the way to 2021. And I should point out that we had a... um, a very similar election set up in Mississippi back in 2018 at, with two Democrats and two Republicans running. And in fact, we did, in fact, have a runoff and we've seen runoffs numerous times in Louisiana. So I think that the chance of a runoff this time around, especially if multiple candidates throw their names into the rings on both sides, quite high. But at this point, we'll just have to see how many people actually end up running. So let's play the Senate math game. then. Mm-hmm. So you've got now two seats up in Georgia. Um, Trump carried Georgia by what, five? About therein. About thereish. So, you know, it's people keep saying it's turning blue. I'll believe it just like Texas when I see it, but we'll continue there later. So Democrats need three seats if they win the White House, four seats if they don't win the White House to take back control. Um does Isaacson change this calculation and like how likely this is? Sure, because you've got another Republican seat open in a state that Democrats continue to think is winnable. And remember, Democrats have won Georgia more recently than they've won Texas, for example. Um, and, and so that helps. Yeah. Uh, plus, the, the significant urban growth is what has fueled a lot of their belief that they can uh, flip Georgia. Um, so now you've got two seats to deal with. It does skew the math they've been looking at. It puts Republicans further on the defense. That said, you, it's going to come down to the quality of candidates. And, um, and, and Stacey Abrams not running is, is a problem for Democrats. They could put up Michelle Nunn. She ran um, a, a earlier and did not um, win. Um, but look, it, it, it's, a, it's an additional weight on the backs of Republicans um, as, they, as they face what could be a headwind election with Donald Trump on the top of the ticket. I, I think the math is as simple as this, right? There are make two, it simpler for me. Please. I'm going to make it as, as simple as I possibly can for you, Mr. Avalon. Democrats, as, you, as Kate mentioned, need a net gain of three. There are three seats right now that Republicans hold that I think are quite doable. Um, Colorado, uh, Cory Gardner, who barely won last time, that's a state. Hillary Clinton won. Uh, Maine, Susan Collins, who obviously voted for the Kavanaugh nomination. She is less popular than she has been in a long time in the state of Maine. That's a state that Democrats have won on the presidential level every single year going back since 1992. Um, and then Arizona, where Martha McSally is filling filling the term um, that was uh, John McCain's seat that he had won a few years back that was originally filled by John Kyle, and then he stepped down and McSally's put in. And McSally's running against Mark Kelly, of course, the former astronaut and husband to Gabby Giffords. He is, in fact, leading in some of the early polls there. McSally just lost a race there last year. So that's three. So he's saying, oh, my God, the Democrats, they have it. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, first off, none of those seats are gimmies. Second off, there's a big problem in Alabama where Doug Jones Correct. is running for, for a full term in that particular state, and that is a state 
State, Donald Trump won by nearly 30 points in 2016. And unless Roy Moore is the Republican nominee again, it's hard to imagine Jones winning. Even if Moore is the nominee with regular turnout, Moore might be able to pull it off. He is running in that primary. Um, and so now you're back down to a net gain of two, and you need that third seat. And one of those potential opportunities is Georgia's special election. So you're saying there's a chance. But the fact of the matter is, Republicans are defending more seats than Democrats are by a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Republicans are defending 23 seats in 2020 um, compared to 12 on the Democratic side. So just in general, there is more of an opportunity for Democratic pickups. That's the fact of the math this time around. But when it comes to history and this is how people vote when they get into when they get into the polling station, do you think it is likely at all that Democrats would take back control of the Senate, but not with the White House. No, no, and that's why I think that whole thing. I think the net gain is three; it's not four. If gotcha. I, were, you know, if I were forced to say something, and someone was putting the pressure on me and promising that if I get it right, I get fast food, and if I get it wrong, I have to eat broccoli, I'd say they probably need the net gain of three, not four, because it's very hard to imagine them picking up four Senate seats or even three Senate seats without also picking up the presidency. Yeah, that's same. Uh, you're Correct a right. Correct mundo. A final deep dive for everyone. Mm. A special jaunt across the pond. Hello. <laughs> we don't. That's your British accent? Was that, was that Queen Elizabeth? Hello. Okay. With a little hand. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Terrifying. Hello. Hello. Uh, I, Hello. You know she was nearly killed by Reggie Jackson. Remember that? No, I don't. That what? Was, you don't. Naked gun. Come on, folks. Okay. Can we dip back into reality? Actually, it might be more fun to just stay in Harry's world well, on this actually, one. Actually, we are in bizarre Brexit world with Brexit. Is, is, yeah, okay. So why not? So we normally focus on U.S. politics, but it's just so fun that let's just do it. Tuesday, the U.K. Parliament returned from its summer break. The first vote they took was a major blow for Boris Johnson. But beyond that, it is so confusing. I actually just put my earmuffs on. John, can you help me? I'm going to endeavor to make this clear because Brexit is a mess. So first of all, Brexit was the vote that was held right before the presidential election and over here in 2016, where populist conservatives forced conservative prime minister uh, David Cameron, then in office, to put forward a referendum on removing Britain from the European Union. Um, the prime minister opposed it, but these folks on the far right wanted to do it. Uh, UKIP and other separatist groups uh, that were sort of self-styled nationalists, possibly done with some Russian assistance in terms of encouraging them in online campaigns and yes, otherwise. That's still, still being still being litigated, but that was the same impulse that was seen. To everyone's surprise, Brexit narrowly won. David Cameron resigned. Theresa May came into office. Then basically the last several years have been spent trying to make this muddle of a deal, which is actually not supported by a majority of Britons now. That's why this is so crazy. Correct. This is trying to make a cheese submarine, and it's not really working terribly well for the British folks. And not delicious. Boris Johnson came in trying to, uh, after Theresa May resigned because she couldn't get the deal done, on a vote only held by Tory party members. So the new prime minister of Britain, former May of London, very flamboyant figure, brilliant, not detail-oriented, uh, has been seen as sort of a mini-Trump by folks mm-hmm. over in that side of the world, um, promised he'd get this done. He won the British Tory party vote, but not voted on by a majority of Britons. He came to into office and he said he would suspend Parliament and got the Queen's approval to do so to try to force through a deal. And, and that wrote tons of fury, in part because he dismissed the idea when he was campaigning for the office. He came in and his first vote in, uh, in, in parliament, he lost. He got a major smackdown. 21 members of his own party 
crossed the party lines and were kicked out of the party. So now he does not have a majority. He doesn't have power. He de- but, but he is still prime minister. And the country is hanging on the precipice. And here's where things get really complicated. October 31st. Uh, he has pledged to uh, have a hard Brexit come hell or high water. That would basically throw markets and Britain into turmoil, immediate tariffs and other issues having to do with borders. This is the worst case scenario that everyone has been trying to avoid. Here's the double problem for Britain and why it's resonant to folks here, not only because if, if UK goes off a cliff economically, it's going to affect America and the world, which it will. Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of labor. Typically, the leader of the opposition party would be in a really good position to pick up power. But this cat is so extreme that he's not seen as a credible prime minister. And so you see the wages of polarization, which we're dealing with here at home, really rippling across the Atlantic in a way that's a giant warning sign, but with a much tighter deadline. How did you on making that comprehensive? It was really it was fascinating, awesome, and perfect. Thank you. Is there polling on this? There is polling on it. My goodness, you think our politicians are unpopular. Take a look at Jeremy Corbyn's approval ratings. I have a list of them here dating back since July. The net approval rating obviously is approved minus disapproved. The best net approval rating on the list that I have here for Corbyn is minus 40 percentage points. Sorry, say that again. Minus? Minus 40 percentage points. His approval rating in these polls never gets above 25 percent, and his disapproval rating never falls below 59 percent. His net approval rating is trash. If you look at the general election polls at this particular time, what you see is the Tory party would most likely win a general election if it were held today. They would get their majority back. But here are the two things, of course, that are going against that. Number one, we know, historically speaking, that general election polls at this point in the U.K. process, let's say they had an election eight weeks down the line, have not been terribly predictive. So things can change. And the other thing that, as John was pointing out, is if you look at the polling about whether or not UKers want to remain in the EU or not, the plurality and majority do, in fact, want to remain in the EU at this particular time. So you have this weird, you know, sort of cross-current going whereby the opposition party leader is unpopular. Johnson, actually, in some of the polling, it breaks about even in terms of popularity. His party would probably win a majority of seats in the House of Commons, yet most people do not want to Brexit, which is what he wants to do. I mean, I, I just think if you if you take... A step. You're talking about kind of the global implications. If you take a step back and you look at Boris Johnson was someone that Donald Trump had no problem throwing his support behind and, his, and who has been very vocal about that. He also has his closest uh, probably foreign ally, we will say, in Benjamin Netanyahu. Both of these leaders mm-hmm. facing re-election, facing real trouble, basically at the same time. I find it fascinating that his basically his two friends in the world could be out at the very same time. Could be. But, you know, they bore, Bibi has climbed back from deficits before. So What's true. really significant about the UK, as, as Harry said, if you see storm clouds on the horizon, if Britain goes off the cliff, watch out. That just got a lot more real. And again, it's a warning about what happens. These great democracies with long traditions have basically paralyzed themselves because of polarization. The country is divided, but the remain folks, people realize that what the bill of goods they were sold on the initial vote wasn't true. Yeah. 
So, Sound familiar? Yeah, exactly. Check. That's, that's, Anyone? That, Anyone? That that sounds exactly like me when I ever go to a pizza shop. I always think it's going to taste better than it actually tastes. So he just sticks with Popeyes. That <laughs> does it for us today, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or a comment. It does help new listeners find the show. You can always find us in the meantime on Twitter. I'm at Kate Baldwin. John. I'm at John Avalon. Mr. Enton. I'm at Forecaster Enton. Special thanks to our team behind the scenes, Amy Eason, Lauren Moore, Emma Sislowski. We will see you right back here next time on The Forecast Fest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.